Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Just Films and That with me, Josh Hallam. And me, Alice Oliver. This is the podcast where we talk about films that we think are underrated, underappreciated, or we just wanted to talk about them. We're also going to get stuck into some classic films that one of us maybe hasn't seen and maybe throw in some great guests along the way. So, we start each week, as we always do, with a, uh, a random question to get us going. Uh, Alice, is there a genre of music that, for whatever reason, you just do not like? Interesting. You know what? I feel like I am one of these people that say, like, oh, I love all music or whatever. Mm. But I genuinely can. Like, I really do see a lot of value in many different genres mm. of music. And I wouldn't say that, like, you can't really judge that one is better than the other when they're offering such different things. But having said that, I think the one kind of music I would never opt to listen to is that like really aggressive screamo, like really like screaming mm. from raw sort of down the microphone sort of thing. Like I completely get that that's like really cathartic and a lot of people really connect to it. But for me, it's just, I've got tinnitus as well. So it's like just not <laughs> that much of a pleasant sound for me. I like some soft, classic dad rock myself. <laughs> Why, which one? Is there one that you just can't listen to? I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly like what you're saying, which is everything is subjective. So it doesn't really matter what either of us say. Yeah, I wouldn't particularly listen to Screamo. I'm not a huge fan of like really heavy anything, like really heavy rap or really heavy hip-hop if that's a thing so yeah i'd probably say the same as you like screamo or re- like really like heavy dance music like dubstep oh yeah yeah um, like again really on the dance floor off your head sort of thing yeah yeah i mean every every type of music obviously has a skill but i i just don't um yeah it's just not for me shall we say yeah <laughs> So uh, we'll move on to talking about this week's film, which is uh, picked by yourself, Alice, and it is Meet Me in St. Louis. So um, obviously, spoiler warning for this, but it is almost 80 years old, over 80 years old. Many decades old. (laughs) Yeah, if you've not had a chance to catch up with it, then I am sorry, but we're going to spoil it for you. So um, Alice, first of all, let's commit. So... Is it Meet Me in St. Louis? Is it Meet Me in St. Louis? Let's let's go early. Let's commit. 
What are we going with? Gosh, I mean, who are we to say, really? It's nobody. It's, well, so I would have thought, I would have thought St. Louis, but I guess the people that live there say St. Louis, and if they're the ones living there, but no, I don't know. I still, I came away from the film still not truly knowing the answer to that. Let's say St. Louis, because it's probably something to do with the French king, right? I would say St. Louis. That's how it. That's how I read it when I read it. And the okay. song, so they do sing Meet Me in St. Louis. It's usually just when they're speaking that it's uh, St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go St. Louis. So I'm intrigued. This is the first of our uh, classic films that we've done. So why did you pick it? And what's it about? So it was a bit of a strange one, I suppose, as to why I picked it. But I was watching Lovecraft Country. Um, there was a scene in which uh, one of the characters was watching Meet Me in St. Louis on, on this big screen. I didn't know that it was Meet Me in St. Louis at the time, but I just saw this huge image of Judy Garland on the screen. And I just thought, gosh, I really don't know that much about Judy Garland. I realised I'd only seen Wizard of Oz that she'd been in. And I was like, she was such a you know huge part of the culture of, of you know American life back then and of the cinema. It seemed criminal that I hadn't seen any more films with her in. So I thought, right, I'll pick, I'll pick that one. So I hadn't seen it before. Um, I, I suppose I hadn't really heard of it. Obviously, I'd heard the song, but I suppose I hadn't really realised that it was tied to a film. So it follows the story of the Smith family. So we've got, you know, mum and dad, two, three daughters, four daughters, quite many, many kids. And they're, you know, sort of leading this idyllic life in suburbia and everything's just sort of nice and secure and comfortable. And the young daughters who live in the house, that they've, um, you know, they've got love interests and we follow their stories and their relationships as they get to know these boys. And you follow the parents and you kind of see a bit about their relationship and you see how the father is, you know, very work-centric. The family obviously rely on him financially, but he lets his... I suppose, lets his need to either be successful or to be financially successful, at least, sort of overcome his more, uh, like, family duties and the and the sort of uh, the wife and the kids sort of start to feel neglected and he wants to move them off to New York. But in the end, everyone, everything sort of works out. The girls get their men. They decide to stay in St. Louis and the World's Fair is coming to town, which is sort of talked about as if it's this like the most monumental sort of wonderful thing that's ever happened like they can't get over that the world's fair is coming to their town they really pushed that didn't they I, I wonder if people do or did behave like that I mean with the world's fair like it's such a strange thing it's a strange one isn't it yeah, it's a strange because also it's it's set it's it's made in 19 in the 40s isn't it 44, yeah. 1944, but it's set in 1903. Mm -hmm. Suppose they would be excited because it's kind of um, before all of the stuff that everyone knows happened in the coming decades, you know, the war and the depression and all that. So it is a kind of turn of the century, looking to the future scientific marvel type thing. So I don't know. I'd be interested to know how excited people were at the time or if they just made it as a kind of, um, as a device in the film. I don't, yeah. I'd be interested to know that. It's sort of just this nice family story. They are like, you know, the poster family of what about, you know, the American dream is meant to signify and, you know, the successful man and the dutiful wife and, you know, the sort of 
kind of well-behaved kids, I suppose, but we do see them get up to some antics, which did provide a lot of comedy in the film, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but anyway, Josh, had you seen this? Um, no, I hadn't. I'd obviously heard of it because it's a very, very famous film, but I, other than hearing about it and knowing Judy Garland was in it, I knew nothing about it. So I was really interested to go in watching it because I find older films can kind of be 50-50 for me. Sometimes I really enjoy them. Like Citizen Kane, for example, is a film I, like, I really enjoy. I can see why it's such a masterpiece. But then other times I can find them a little, obviously a little dated, a little boring. They're made for an audience who are obviously vastly different to us, you know, 70, 80 years later. So I was really interested to go in and kind of um, and see how it had aged. I'm also not a... Um, I'm not a big musicals guy, so I, I do like, I like some musicals, but not. I quite often find myself a little cold on your massive classic orchestral, what you think of as your really big Broadway old classic musicals. So like, you know, I'm not like massive on things like West Side Story or South Pacific or, but then at the same time, I do quite like The Sound of Music. So... I don't know, maybe it's just uh, each one has to be taken on its own merits. So I was very interested to see um, how it aged and if I could take to it. So uh, that being said, what did you think? So it's interesting when you're watching a film that's that old because you do, you sort of have to watch it in a different way. And I would, I would describe the viewing experience as more sort of interesting than entertaining because, you know, the story is not particularly gripping, but, you know, we're, we're looking at an industry that is just coming to grips with, with cinema. You know, they're, they're, it was such an era of discovery and we were just kind of figuring out things about, you know, lighting and sound. And, and so you watch it with, with sort of awe as well, because it's like, here's some of the first and some of the most significant cinema of our time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because if you think of it, if this is 1944, cinema is, you know, it's not even 50 years old at this point. Certainly large-scale entertainment cinema isn't 50 years old. So it's difficult. with when, when you do a film like this, it's difficult to look at it with what we know now. It's difficult to look at it with, through the eyes of someone living in 2020 who, you know, is almost like spoiled for choice because back in the day, you went and watched what you went and watched and, and that was kind of it, you know. So it is, it is interesting and it's difficult sometimes, especially when judging a film and how it's aged, to turn that cynicism and that, not political correctness, because it's not really that kind of film, but almost some of the archetypes, the stock characters in there, you know, it is very, the women are women and the men are men and the dad goes to work and the, there's a maid and she's and the mum's the mum and the girls are all about marrying men and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, it definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> The what, sorry? The what test? So the Bechdel test, and I'm no expert in this, but I believe it's something along the lines of two female characters are shown on screen talking about anything other than a man. Right, yes, yes, that rings a bell. That rings a bell now that, now that you've explained it to me, Josh. Thank you. So, um, and I think that's probably, you're probably going to have to extend that to adult female characters because there are children in this who definitely don't talk about <laughs> men but yeah so it, it's interesting when you're looking at that because it's, it's difficult to switch that little thing that little voice in your head that's kind of there to go well what about that what about that so switching that off I mean I 
I did quite enjoy it. It's certainly very charming. It's very warm. It's very sweet. You can see it's just there to be a big musical and it's there for kind of all the family to enjoy. It looks incredible. Like the sets look incredible. The costumes, I mean, the dresses and the suits, because even for the time, you've got to remember, I suppose, it's a period piece in the 40s because it's set, you know, it's like setting, like us setting something in the 70s now, like Mindhunter or something like that. It's So they're using period costumes, so it looks incredible. Um, I also didn't, I quite liked... I quite like some of the songs as well. I, I had no idea. I don't know about you. I had no idea that um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas was from this. I had no idea that I knew the trolley song, but I knew it probably from the fact that it's just been kind of absorbed into culture. I, I think I know it from The Simpsons. I think the character sings it in that, you know, the um, sing, 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 am I happy? That yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of this film was familiar to me because of reference, because yeah. of seeing things in, like you say, Simpsons Family Guy. Like they're always referencing this like classic media. That was the same way I sort of learned about Star Wars as well. Was through that was through Family Guy. <laughs> then obviously Family Guy do all that shit with Star Wars. Like, yeah. But you've seen it, so then when you do see it, it feels familiar. So yeah, the trolley song was great. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Me and St. Louis, of course. And there was one as well where they were they were dancing at the ball at the Smiths' house. The music was. It was big, wasn't it? It yeah. was like big music. They were it's big. like a, it's like a stage musical. It's big. It's you can see it's it's just like you say it's a huge scale thing in terms of everything's real, and you can definitely you definitely get that kind of um, authentic feel from it. I think. Mm-hmm. Also, did you notice actually the very early use of green screen when yes. Neely and the young Tootie are in the. Um, what, what is he? Is he a milkman? Is he in a milk cart, or is he well, like, um, on top of the horse? It's it's the kind of classic projection screens, isn't it? Which is like what? It, so that was like the precursor to green screen, I think. So they would project an image behind them, and then they kind of sit in front of it, you know, moving up and down as if they're moving along the road, and it makes it gives the perception um, the car or cart or tram or or train or whatever it is is, is going along. That projection technology, like you say, it's a really, it's really interesting. That's also, that's how you know you're watching an older film as well, isn't it? When it's like someone who's clearly not going anywhere, but they're doing the kind of Ace Ventura sitting in the car, bouncing up and down. Oh yeah, <laughs> in the just, background, that's an iconic image, and I just love sort of seeing that old technology. Something else I noticed as well, but and and this might not have been anything, might be me paying too much attention. I don't know, but it was just something really small. But in some of the opening scenes, so we're getting a lot. That you know, uh, the maid is trying to make this tomato ketchup to make it smell good, and sort of a lot of the action is taking place in the kitchen and whatnot. And one of the maids, she's laying the table or something. And she sort of slams a spoon down and it like bounces all the wrong way. And it was just kind of like clearly an accident. And I was just like thinking, yeah, but if you did an accident back then, you can't just retake like that, can mm. you? Think about how the film reel works and how expensive yeah. every bit of film is. It's not like today where you just go for a million and one takes, is it? Yeah. And I suppose that really adds to that sort of thing like you were saying about it being a musical, about it feeling live and about it feeling like it's sort of going on in front of you. I found the script and sort of some of the scenarios and the way the scenes were laid out very much like a theatre production, almost like a pantomime. Like each each was sort of like nice and boxed off one after another. Yeah. It's kind of like 
watching a series of tableaus, you know, just these images that are trying to conjure up these feelings. So you get sort of some great moments in the dining room scene where they're all gathering around for dinner. They've been waiting for Dan to come home, but he's, well, he wanted to have dinner at half six and they want to have it at half five, but it's all really dramatic. And, you know, they have a little bit of a row. And the eldest daughter, Rose, I believe, yes. So Rose is awaiting a long distance phone call from a young man in New York who's promised to phone her. And Esther, who is Julie Garland's character, keeps saying, um, oh, he's going to propose, he's going to propose. She's waiting for a long-distance call from New York because he's going to propose. And it's just, it becomes like this running thing where almost every member of the family says that sequence of words sort of one after another. And that just kind of made me, it, it made it feel very theatrical, but was also quite funny as well. And I did think you did get some moments of really quite nice comedy, I suppose. No, you're you're absolutely right. That kind of technique of repeating lines, so every character coming in and tasting the ketchup and it's ta- saying it's too something, it's too sour, it's too sweet or whatever, that is a very like classic playwriting technique of characters entering the scene and leaving again. So you you really can tell it's been it's been rehearsed this within an inch of its life. Like every dancer, every performer knows their place and it's so it's very much a product of that time i mean things like that are now but these were the real you know these were the real torch bearers of this kind of big scale lots of cast members lots of crew members type productions and you can really see where the work comes into it's like you say about the about the rehearsal you know you couldn't you couldn't cock stuff up that's why it makes things like big dance scenes i'm just in awe of anyone who can choreograph and direct that that level of um, an amount of people or when you look at something like Chaplin or Buster Keaton and they're, you know, swinging off stuff and, and, and things are falling at the right time and they're kind of doing these pratfalls and these big farcical pieces and every stunt is exactly timed. I just think it's a, it's a real marvel of, of, of filmmaking. That's one of the things I really love is, you know, looking at stuff and even now looking at stuff from that long ago and being like, that, that's really impressive. Oh, yeah, certainly. This is why it is. it becomes more of a, it's like a fact-finding thing, or it's like, you you know, you're sort of investigating, and it's like, right, how would they have done this 100 years ago? Or how would they have done this 80 years ago? And then you think about being the camera guy on that day, and it's just like, what? Like, how massive would the camera have been? How many people have you got setting it up? And you just kind of, because we know what sort of productions look like now, because we see it all the time. Like, it's in the news all the time, they'll show you a set, you know, the been filming in Liverpool and stuff like you see you see it you see how it's all made but you kind of don't have that same image of early cinema and I just always imagine just like just so much equipment like so much so it's interesting like you said earlier so you pick this because you've not seen much of Judy Garland and you know what a massive star she was in terms of the history of cinema and I'm like you so I I'd Seen her in The Wizard of Oz, I knew a little bit, I knew she was Liza Minnelli's mum, you know, I knew a little bit about the fact that she had her, she was, you know, very poorly treated as a very young person, and and that kind of led on to quite a sad, you know, life and stuff, and I knew, I knew little bits of that, but I'd never seen her in anything other than The Wizard of Oz, so I was quite interested to see her, and I think you can really see that she had that star quality and that star power, you know, she's, she's very much a, an America's sweetheart, you know, butter wouldn't melt type. She gives these this amazingly, you know, wide-eyed performance where you're seeing, you know, you're seeing a kind of coy reactions to everything. 
add to that the fact that she has this this incredible singing voice. And she really does. I mean, obviously, I, I knew that she did, but seeing that range from The Wizard of Oz through to this and knowing what incredible singing voice she had, and I didn't even I didn't actually know until I saw this how little she was. So she was only four foot eleven. She was tiny, which um, I know I know that I don't know how much of a difference that makes in terms of how good someone's singing is, but you can see why she she was this kind of childlike, wide-eyed figure. I mean, what did you think? Was this what did you think? Did she almost? I suppose what I'm trying to say is, did she live up to expectations of this America's sweetheart type character? I certainly think so, and it just felt I just felt something when I saw her on screen as well. Like you say, she is one of the most significant sort of people now in our cinematic history, sort of as far as cinema has existed, I imagine all over the world. So it was just, it was so nice to see her. And I mean, she's beautiful, like absolutely beautiful woman. Like I I just found her absolutely striking. And her singing voice was gorgeous. And, and not knowing, not knowing that uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas was in it, when she sang right at the end, like, Oh, it got me in my core. I don't know if it's because we've been having like a bit of a weird year because of everything. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. But I suppose I hadn't really, you know, I just hadn't taken a minute to sit and process or whatever. And it was just like, there she was in the window singing. And it was so, like, it just, it just kind of filled you with nostalgia as well. And I feel like that's definitely obviously something that the film is going for. It's trying to remind you of a time, whether it was real or not, in 1903 America, I'm sure it wasn't, but that everything was perfect, pre-depression, pre-war. But obviously, it you know, it wasn't. You know, the films are there to kind of make you think, oh, remember when things were good? Yeah, things could maybe be like that again someday. Yeah, it's very, it's very warm washed, isn't it? It's not, I mean, it's there to entertain. It's not trying to deal with any socio-political points of the time. But like you say, it's not, it's very much just like everything's lovely, like everywhere is really like so clean. Like there's no, there's just no issues of any kind. But like I said, that's not, it's not there to deal with anything like that. Whether you do or do not like that, it's there to just entertain and for you to enjoy the the big sets and lovely costumes. And like you say, Judy Garland being this kind of pretty doll-like character with an, with an amazing singing voice. Because it's a slightly different performance to Wizard of Oz because although she's still very young and it's not that long after the Wizard of Oz, she's a bit more mature. You know, she's very much like pretty much a child in the Wizard of Oz. And in this, she's kind of, you know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. An adult on the cusp of adulthood, if you like. So I thought it was really interesting because back to what we were saying about the script, she really holds her own with some experienced character actors in there. And the script's really, it's got some really funny moments, but also some stuff in there for her, like, you know, she has to really go for um, her love interest because her love interest, her, her, her little daughter, her little sister, sorry, not her daughter, tells her that her love interest uh, either hit her or pushed her or something. And she goes around and kind of confronts him. And it's very much that trope of the time of, you can tell she's actually doing it. You know, it's that, old adage of we're only doing it once just hit me you know it's mm. like like john cleese always used to say to andrew Sachs, oh for god's sake you know we're not doing this every night just just get it done again quite a brutal way of looking at it but it certainly shows in terms of how good it looks and she she really does she does go for it and she does i think hold her own um with the other with the other characters on the screen she's also very funny um a lot of the lines aren't really there for her to be funny but she that they're kind of given to the dad and the other characters, but she she really does for someone who at the time was so young, and knowing now that we know she was quite mistreated several years prior, she does a she's, there's a lot on her shoulders really. Yeah, certainly, certainly, and I think that maybe that was part of the reason why women liked watching her as well because she does for all her innocence and in that she does exude a level of confidence. And I think she definitely did in this. Like I didn't, I mean, obviously she follows the typical storyline of basically just when can I get married? But you know, that's fine, product of the times. But she's, she just doesn't look afraid at any point. She never looks vulnerable. She looks like, she looks like she's, I suppose she does know what she wants, really, doesn't she? Even though she's so young, she wants the boy next door. That is her absolute mission. And she makes it happen, to be fair. So I suppose in that way, she kind of looks like she's a really, you know, go and get it kind of gal, even if it is just about the boy next door. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I've never really thought of it like that. So as, as much as it is that 
like you say, outdated. Uh, she just wants to get married and be a wife and, you know, probably a mother kind of storyline. As much as it is that, she also goes and gets him. And she, you know, no. she she goes out and gets him. And she also does stuff to kind of, there are other characters who, if they're in the in her way, she's got no issues with either embarrassing them or making sure that she gets what she wants. So she is assertive in that nature. Yeah, certainly. And most of it's fine, except for the when she, you know, starts hitting him. Because she really wallops him. Like, she smacks him around the face. Doesn't she bite him as well? She, um, I think, yeah, she, 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 she pretty much KOs him, like. <laughs> yeah, she really goes for it. Um, but, of course, that's a response to what Tootie said about him throwing her on the track. So let's talk about Tootie for a bit. Her, her storyline was just, it was just really interesting. And it went away that I just kind of didn't see coming whatsoever because the bulk of the film is very much about the older daughters, really, isn't it? It's about mm. their love lives. It's what's going on with them. But two, he's too young to have a love life. So what has she got? So it's Halloween. Because I suppose the film really follows, it follows a year, doesn't it? Because we start in 1903, so and we end up at Christmas in 1904. So in that time, we get Halloween. So Tootie goes out, and all the kids are just absolute little hoodlums, like starting fires, throwing flour on people's faces, like ringing people's doorbells. But when they do it, so the ringleader of their, you know, sort of Halloween friend gang is this lad. And he says, like, who are you going to kill? Who are you going to kill? And it, in reference to throwing flower bombs at them. Is, is it flower bombs? Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's... Just, it's just, I think flower. it's... Um, yeah, I think it's flower bombs or bags of flour, handfuls of flour. It's flour. Yeah. <laughs> it's flour. Yeah. That's what they're flour is. <laughs> um, but yeah, and they reference, you know, that action as killing someone. And it's all just sort of quite... Like, like these kids have got a lot of angst that they want to let out. And you just kind of see this unfold and you follow her on her little journey. On her mischief, on her, on her mischievous kind of, yeah. Yeah. On her yeah. Mis- up to no good type storyline, isn't it? Yeah, and it was just a funny little break from what was going on elsewhere. But that, and that was strange because obviously we're adults and it's not often that you would have like such a kid-heavy scene in a film that has been mostly kind of like for adults, but I suppose it is a family film. You want to, mm-hmm. you would have wanted people to go to the cinema as a whole family, right? To get the yeah. tickets. So you shove that kid scene in there, and then it's something the kids can get excited about as well, you know, just kind of like getting mucky and annoying the adults and stuff. But she, I thought, as, as a young child actor, a very young child, I thought she did a great job, little Tootie. So we talked about, you know, what we like. We talked about the performances and the script and, and the kind of whole feel of the film. Was there anything that you kind of didn't, didn't like? Bearing in mind what we've already said about looking at it in context, I suppose. So from a technical point of view, I wouldn't say that there's anything I didn't like. You know, like, the, did the script blow me away? No, but it pretty much made sense. And it was, like you say, charming. I think that's... I think that's the really apt word for this, really, isn't it? It's charming. Um, so technically, I thought, you know, nothing really, you know, because you can't, like you say, you're looking at it, you have to look at it through different eyes. You can't imagine it with the same standards as today, with the high-quality gear that we've got, like, and how we've streamlined the process in so many ways. Um, some of the things that you just, it's not that I didn't like about the film, but something that I was obviously made to think about as I watched it was 
thinking about the time when it was set, when it was made, and the kind of image that it's projecting. So obviously it was made or released at least in 1944. So you've got the backdrop there of World War II, America, you know, not long out of a depression. Things probably were feeling great and people, I think, were probably in very hard times. So you've got that and you think, well, it's great that the cinema was there. The cinema offers escapism. You know, it, it's, it lets you go somewhere for two hours where you can just focus on what's going on in front of you and you just lose yourself. And so obviously that's great. But when you think about the time period, so we're going from 1903 to 1944, and so much has happened in that time, especially with regards to the black history in the USA. Obviously, you had the Tulsa riots in the 20s and just so much kind of racial tension and violence going on between that. And then you get this film that shows this time in the early 1900s. And obviously everybody is white and it's a very sort of, you are just like this type A person and everyone in the film seems to be that way pretty much. And it's just kind of, it's like, it's just glorifying the time before a little bit. And it's mm. just, you know, oh, don't you remember how great and shiny and, and brilliant things were and how happy everyone felt. And you kind of, you get that they're trying to sort of convey that as well. You know, with the music, so the music was very interesting. It was always very big very dramatic music, like where you'd get sort of quite an intimate scene sort of between two of the characters. I know you'd get moments where um, where Esther would be flirting with John. Uh, so you get quite sort of, you know, quite tender or nice moments, romantic moments with them. But there's these like massive violins to this huge orchestra playing. So you kind of never get a chance to sort of breathe, I suppose, during the film. You don't get a chance to kind of stop and come down from the high. It just wants you to be on a high all the time. And it's like, here's a song. Here's Judy Garland dancing around a room singing a song. Here's a big piece of music. Here's it ending happily ever after. So you can't punish the film for that because that's just, you know. I think you make an interesting point in terms of, yeah, okay, we don't want to judge a film too harshly, especially because of it, how long it's been since it was released. But you also can't ignore, knowing what we know now, that the film is essentially loads of rich white people and loads of subservient white people. So it's interesting that you say that you still kind of can't, we still kind of can't ignore that fact. I also, I agree with what you're saying, like about, I like looking at films in relation to what was going on at the time. So I think it is really interesting that, like you say, around this time when the world war was going on, Films were kind of big, massive musicals that kind of didn't really deal with anything. They were just kind of warm and lovely and charming and come in and sit down and have a nice time. And then that goes through, you know, with other films, which we might have mentioned before, you know, stuff like the 50s and when America was dealing with communism, you get a lot of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers films. And that's still going on now. You know, there's an argument to say that in a post 9-11 world, there was a lot of superhero films and, you know, one person or a team of people coming to save everybody from the horrible people. So I find that really interesting. That's one of the things I really en enjoy about this kind of this podcast is, is that we we can look at films now and we can look at what was going on and wonder, just wonder how things were affected at the time. I'm the same as you. I'm finding it difficult to to find stuff that that I don't like that isn't just a product of the time. It is it is very like stock characters and it is very kind of basic and, and what the characters want and what the characters needs, but it's it's not there for that. It's just there to be a big, spectacular production and it's a feast for the eyes and costumes are great and the music's great. You know, generically, it can be a bit 
it's a bit all over the place. You know, it's kind of funny. It's a musical. It's a romance. There's bits of a Christmas film in there, but it's not saying it's any one thing. That, that all those things I've just said, Christmas and romance and musical, they all kind of come under the musical umbrella, I suppose, for me. So I don't really have any problems with it that aren't a product of the time. Um, I mean, it's literally one of the worst prop snowmen I've ever seen. There's a bit oh where they, they, <laughs> they, cool. play with, so they play with some snowmen and it's like they're just polystyrene. They have like yeah. a clip, they have such a clean break, they might as well have cut them in half with a sword. It's just, it's incredible. But other than that, I mean, if that's all you can say about a film, it's doing pretty well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think it does do, I suppose, just what it was designed to do. I suppose for all my cynicism saying, you know, it's like, oh, why would you lie to the people and say that things were better back then? But like I said, things were probably pretty grim at the time. So it's just like, listen, I just want to see someone singing and dancing about how great St. Louis is for a couple of hours and, and to just go over and think about it. And then, you know, then you've got the songs and it's like that's part of the entertainment and it can be like, you know, people would get the song stuck in their head and that. And I'm sure that's always that's really a nice feeling when you see a musical and you just become obsessed with the music. Um, but no, I think... I think it it looked lovely, didn't it? Like it really yeah. did look great. Like the and sounded lovely, fantastic and vivid, and and but like you say, it was very formulaic. I suppose it was just kind of like here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end, here's your sort of archetype characters. This is getting us from point A to point B, sort of thing. Would you agree that it's it's kind of not trying to be anything other than looking and sounding lovely? I guess. Yeah, I think it was just kind of like the perfect escapism for the time, definitely. So we'll move on to the critical perception in a moment. But uh, before we do, Alice, I believe you uh, got a little something for us. Yes, indeed, Josh. Follow me now and listeners down the rabbit hole, ready for this bit that I like to call Alice down the rabbit hole. So... In the credits of Meet Me in St. Louis, which are at the beginning of the film, I noticed that one of the cast members was called Chill Wills. So I had to find out more about this guy to find out just how chill Wills might be. Turns out, not that chill. Theodore Childress Wills was born on the hottest day of the year in 1902 and went by the name Chill as an ironic reference to that fact. Like with many actors we've discussed over the past few weeks, Chill started off in a boy band that he formed called the Avalon Boys. The band disbanded in 1938 and Chill focused on his acting career that would span decades, starring alongside Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean. But perhaps his most famous role was in 1960 as beekeeper in John Wayne's The Alamo. The film missed the mark with some critics, except for Chill's performance that earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. At 58, this could have been his final chance to nab the award, and so he went in hard. And what followed is what has been described as the worst promotional campaign in Oscar history. What have been called desperate, tasteless and offensive ads started appearing in newspapers pushing for Chill to be awarded the honour. The transparency and arrogance of the ads had the total opposite of the desired effect. John Wayne tried to distance himself from the actor, saying that neither he nor the Alamo cast and crew had any part in the cheap publicity stunts. On Oscar night, Bob Hope drew attention to Chill's efforts, saying, I didn't know there was any campaigning until I saw my maid wearing a Chill Wills button. Despite seven nominations, the Alamo scooped just one award, the best sound. And that was Alice Down the Rabbit Hole. It's really weird to think of someone in a boy band in the 30s. 
well, it, so it was called Musical Group. But I was like, I, t- I, I took from that. It's like, yeah, yeah, Backstreet Boys could be a musical group too. I thought you meant, I thought you meant their name was Musical Group. Like, <laughs> good evening, we are Musical Group. And this is First Song. <laughs> okay, so we will uh, move on to talking about the critical reception. So I'm intrigued because I've got it in front of me. How do you think it did? Just in general, how do you think it did? In general, I mean, I imagine I imagine it scored quite high because I think people do hold it in quite high regard, and it, you know, it is quite it's quite iconic to many people, even though I'd never seen it and I wasn't really familiar with it. Um, and sort of when you think about other films that were maybe coming out at the time as well, and do you how can you rate a film that came out in twenty nineteen against a film that came out in nineteen forty four? It's very strange, isn't it? But I think. I think overall it is it is enjoyable and the songs were just really, really great. I think a real highlight for me. Um, I reckon people would have given it a pretty high score, like maybe an 8.5 or like late 8s maybe. Yeah, so it's interesting actually. So on IMDb it gets 7.6 out of 10. Oh, really? Oh, but, that surprises me. But... On um, Rotten Tomatoes, it gets 87% from the audience. However, a, a, fil- a first for just films and that, it gets 100% on the critics' tomato meter. Wow. 100. So that being said, bearing in mind we're kind of talking about critical reception rather than audience score, I suppose. I mean, we take everything into account, but taking that into account, is it underrated? Can it be underrated if it's 100%? Uh, no. <laughs> so it's almost... not underrated. Well, the seven, I thought the, the seven score on the IMDb page, maybe maybe that was a little bit mean, but no, 100%, that's, that's unheard of. Almost by definition, we have to say it's overrated because like nothing's 100%. No, of course. Well, it's not even Terminator <laughs> 2, and I know that's shocking. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, overrated. Ah. Well, let's, I tell you what, let's say this. Okay, so it might not be 100%. We picked it because it's a classic film, so we didn't pick it because it's underseen, underrated. Did it live up to expectations for you? Sure, yeah. Like, it was, it was what I would expect a, a film from that time period to kind of look like and be about and you know, and that sort of thing. I think it did, like, I didn't feel disappointed in any way. Well, did you feel that? How did you? No, I'm, I'm the same as you. I wasn't, I wouldn't be in like a huge rush to watch it again, but I enjoyed it. It was warm. It was charming. It looked amazing. I can definitely see why it's become a classic and I definitely see why it's become a family classic. A lot of people, I think, would consider this almost like a kind of It's a Wonderful Life type, watch it on Christmas Eve type film. So I can definitely see why it's a classic, but... I can't, obviously I can't say it's underrated because it was 100%, but I can see why it's a classic. So we picked it because it's a classic film. We can see why it's a classic. So we'll call it appropriately rated, kind of. <laughs> well, no, you could, I mean, it's got to go in the overrated pile, right? It's got to. <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's say this. Does it deserve to be a classic film? I would say so, yeah. So let's say. say it's deserving of its status. 
Yes, absolutely. Mimi and St. Louis, deserving of its status. I bet that's the review we always wanted. <laughs> So, there we go, our first classic film, and uh, in a new kind of new category, deserves to be a classic film, shall we say. Oh, certainly. Agreed. Josh, what are we watching next week? So, next week we're going to go for a slightly different flavour from Meet Me in St. Louis. We're going to be watching The Losers. Okay. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. It's got, uh, it's from 2010 and it's a kind of adaptation of a comic book film. And I will say no more than that. So I'll be interested to see what you think of that next, uh, next week. Um, Yeah. So get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought, think of any of the films we've done so far, really. Um, It's films on that pod at gmail.com. Do get in touch. If you've got a film you'd like us to do uh, or any other general questions if you've got a random question for the beginning we'd just like to hear from you um as i say films on that pod at gmail.com uh the twitter's at films underscore that and facebook and instagram is films and that pod alice uh thank you uh, as ever for joining us on the first classic episode thank you very much josh um and we'll we'll uh see you next week it's goodbye from me cheerio bye This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.